welcome back to the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Edwin Porras. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, rating. We'll get right to it today because we have the one of the OGs of injury analysis when it comes to fantasy football. When I think of OGs, I think uh, Pro Football Doc, I think Stefania Bell, I think Gene Bramel, and a big influencer in, in the way that I write, his, his trademark is sort of, you know, to be as simple as possible, but to explain as much as necessary. That's what I try to do in what and everything that I write. Um, Dr. Gene Bramel is a pediatrician. He helps, uh, he does a little volunteering on the side uh, with the high school, high school. Uh, is it just all sports or is it, is it football? It's primarily football and sideline work, but I'm available for the athletic trainers if they need anything. Awesome. And he's also, obviously you can find his stuff at football guys, uh, com with all his injury analysis. He put out a killer article on COVID um, and he sort of laid out all of the the potential, you know, the potential effects that it's going to have on fantasy players. Um, so we can just jump right into it. So the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, in, in plain language, can you, which is obviously your trademark, can you please explain what, what COVID does to the human body from a physiological perspective, how that manifests clinically, and, and why is it dangerous? And what are the after effects? Well, firstly... Thanks for having me on, Edwin. I really appreciate it. It's great to be on with you. You guys are doing great work over there, and I'm excited to be on. I, you asked me, what is COVID? It does everything. One of the hallmarks of this illness and this viral illness is that the, the receptor that it binds to and attacks and causes infection can be found everywhere. We think of it as a respiratory virus, but as we learn more and more about it, and it's only been six to seven months since we learned much about it, uh, we learned that it can cause issues with clotting. It can cause issues with heart muscles. Um, there may be some indication that there may be some neurologic effects down the line. And, um, you know, this being such a relatively new situation, we don't have a long period of time and, and, and studies to draw upon to know exactly how it might affect the body. So for that reason, not only is it dangerous in the acute phase, when we're not sure whether or not there's going to be significant respiratory illness, heart illness, what have you, or a very mild infection, we really don't know what the long-term impacts of uh, this infection on anyone may be. And it may be that asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic infections cause meaningful illness down the line for all the things that I just mentioned. Or it may be that it may not turn out to be much. But I think, you know, until we know more, we're already seeing some indications that in certain patient populations that it can be a little bit more longer term infection. We're already hearing the term long COVID thrown out there. It just remains to be seen on just how dangerous it is. We know how dangerous it can be in the short term, but long term may be an issue as well. And when you say, and by the way, I just totally botched that, that intro for you because, uh, I'm so excited. I think I'm nervous, anxious energy. <laughs> you can find Dr. <laughs> Bramble at, at Gene Bramble on Twitter. Um, but yes, he just laid out essentially that we have this virus that we don't know anything about. It's a six or seven month old virus. And when you say, you know, it can, it can last six or seven months. What, what exactly do you see, you know, in patients or what, what can we expect if patients do get this quote unquote, you know, this new long COVID, what, what do you expect from that? I'm not sure what to expect. I think we are definitely hearing that there may be some after effects on the heart muscle. You know, there's a number of viral infections, influenza among them, that can cause inflammation in the heart muscle, myocarditis. And that can be a long-term thing. There are many different types of myocarditis, but um, heart muscle damage, it's one of the areas of the body that's very difficult to heal. The heart muscle doesn't heal. So if you've had a heart attack, generally the scarring that occurs in the heart muscle is permanent. 
uh, not generally it is. And, and, you know, maybe you can compensate in other areas, but, you know, we're going to be talking about elite athletes here shortly. And, uh, and we're talking about the best of the best and the, and the and fractions of percentage when we're talking about high school players to college to professional to the elite of the elite and losing a little bit of lung capacity, losing a little bit of heart function, um, you know, the potential for complications with clotting disorders and otherwise is, is really meaningful. And, and until we get a handle on, you know, how long how long will this go? Is it recoverable? How much of it is recoverable? You know, is it just going to take some of these folks that have issues with their lungs? Is there going to be remodeling and healing that takes place such that, you know, three, six months down the line, even if you have a severe illness, that there's some recovery? I don't think we know the answer to that. I think it stands to reason that that's less likely. And a player that loses you know, a fraction of percentage of what they're able to do, that may mean the difference between them making a roster and then leaving the league. Absolutely. And I think that you make a good point too. When we think of is this going to affect players? You know, the probability of it affecting player is it's not, it's not zero, obviously, but you do think of those players who are sort of athletically, or maybe, you know, from a, a physical conditioning capa- capacity on the fringe, you know, the foot soldiers, the ones who are really working their butt off to get to where they're at in the first place. Um, if they contract this, and like you said, if they lose even 1% or 2% or whatever of their, of their lung capacity or something, like you said, maybe they get some heart damage or something, you know, God forbid, that's something that's going to prevent them from even making a team. And so, you know, as fantasy football players, we a lot of times look to the star skill positions. We look to, you know, oh, what if George Kittle gets this? Or, you know, what if Ben Roethlisberger gets this? But really, it's going to affect everybody, you know, not just not just the staffers and the interns and, and the executives. You know, it's going to affect all the the foot soldiers who, who like I was just saying, you know, are, are really battling to even get on a team in the first place. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a really good point by you. And, you know, you did mention the elite athletes, you know, I think one tough, one thing that I've noticed in people is that they, it's, it's sort of, there's, they're under the impression that, you know, just because you're young and just because you are, you know, fit and, and in good shape that you can't contract the virus and that you won't be symptomatic. Uh, Is that true? Is, Is it true that if you're basically healthy, you, you almost, it's almost a certainty that you won't have symptoms? I think the data suggests that the younger you are, the less likely you are to get infections infected with COVID. And, and we can go into the biology of that. I don't know that it's meaningful for the purposes of our conversation, but there is some a couple of decent scientific reasons for why we might postulate that to be the case. But as you said, the risk is not zero. Is it high? No. I mean, we always hear that 99 point whatever percent thrown around, but you know, we're talking about if you, you know, if we are to assume that there's 90 players across 32 teams reporting, that's just shy of 3,000 players in the league. And that doesn't uh, include, you know, another 100 or 200 that may come into the league as practice squad players or as, as players wash out, so on and so forth. So even if we're looking on the order of one in a thousand, you know, it, it's po- po- very possible and we're not including coaching staff and, and officials and front office personnel and support personnel that, you know, a, a small handful of players are going to have meaningful infections. There's a Red Sox pitcher right now who's going to be lost for the rest of the season with a myocarditis um, situation. And, you know, you hope that that doesn't occur in the NFL. And so far, I think we've been lucky across the majority of sports leagues where we haven't seen anybody that we've heard that has had severe enough illness to risk hospitalization and beyond. But, you know, as you say, the risk is in zero and hopefully this is a patient population there may be some segments of the NFL community where we have some worries about high-risk conditions, but this is a segment of the pa- patient population that would be, you'd consider to be relatively low risk. Hopefully they have fewer risk conditions and hopefully they're in better condition. But again, you know, there's there's so many factors that go into whether or not somebody has severe illness or not. I don't think it's safe to assume that an elite athlete population is at zero risk of severe illness. 
Right. I think that's something that is definitely important to to keep in mind is that they're, I mean, yes, they're, they're ultra elite and yes, they're super young and they're healthy in a lot of times, but the risk is not zero for them. So sort of transitioning then into more specifics, are there position groups or are there, um, is there, is there any type of player or maybe archetype of player that you're more concerned about? Because you laid out in your article uh, at footballguys.com laying out your COVID article. Um, you guys can, can search that at footballguys.com. It's so, it's so good. It gets into so much detail um, and really lays it out perfectly. Um, you do talk about specific positions though. So what, what positions or, or maybe art and archetype of a player are you concerned about? I think we naturally have to be concerned about the offense and defensive line. Any player that has put on a little bit extra weight for their position, most of it is going to be muscle. But a lot of this, you see offensive linemen after offensive linemen post pictures on Twitter and Instagram about the 30, 40, 60, 70 pounds they lost after they left the league just because they simply did not need that mass any longer. And we know that obesity and elevated BMI's body mass index is a high risk condition for COVID. And that probably has to do with respiratory issues, but it might also put heart and coagulation systems, you know, the clotting system at a little bit higher risk as well. So I think it entirely stands to reason that if we are going to see complications, you know, you probably would expect them to be in some of the elevated BMI situation. And we know, you know, a BMI of an NFL player is not the same. You know, if we got a BMI of 35, say an NFL player, that's totally different as far as um, conditioning and, 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 uh, and cardiac cardiovascular conditioning and what have you than somebody with a BMI in the general population. But does that, that does not mean that it's not meaningful. So, um, you know, BMI and obesity being a risk, uh, a certain number of these players by virtue of carrying that extra weight are very likely to have high blood pressure, which we know is a high risk factor as well. Um, you know, we're not privy to everybody's medical records. So there's, there's likely to be a, a significant percentage of folks that have asthma that we might need to be a little bit more concerned about. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, just looking at the risk factors that we do know, those offensive and defensive linemen are probably at highest risk. Absolutely. And that's when you start to think about, you know, offensive linemen specifically, whose offensive line is more efficient in terms of running backs, you know, which running backs are most dependent on their offensive lines. And if they lose a guard or if they lose a center, you know, they lose a couple tackles, what are, what are they going to perform? What's the performance going to look like? How is it, how is it going to affect the team? How's it, how is it going to affect the game script? You know, the same could be said for defensive uh, players, you know, if Jadavion Clowney and JJ Watt, don't play, maybe you you boost those um, that, those opposing running games or even passing games a little more. So that's I thought that was a super good point brought up by you is that we don't think about indirect fantasy impacts a lot of times because I think that as a as a general species <laughs> the average fantasy football player um, really likes to look more um, macro, but the micro is that if these if these linemen are, are significantly affected at, at, you know, relatively high numbers and it can affect even not low numbers and it can affect the way that they, they sort of, uh, how the offensive skill players perform. So that, that's, that's great. And again, you guys can check out Dr. Gene Bramble's article on COVID at footballguys.com. The whole thing is just wonderfully written. It explains it perfectly. Use the plain language. It's, it's really good. So then moving on to maybe some skill players now, how is it? So to me, when I, and obviously this is your wheelhouse, you know, I know enough to be dangerous about this, this, the physiological aspects of this, you know, the cardiovascular system and, and the biology, I know enough to be dangerous, but this is truly your wheelhouse. How overblown or maybe not overblown is it when I say something like, okay, Mark Andrews has type one diabetes is, you know, he is more likely to, you know, contract COVID, be symptomatic, et cetera, et cetera. And the same goes for, you know, Tevin Coleman and John Brown who have the sickle cell trait. Uh, is, is that overblown? Is it appropriately, you know, placed that, that level of concern? What are your thoughts on that? 
I think it's a very reasonable question to ask. And I know you share my feelings on the term injury prone and all the issues that go along with that. And, 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 and to me, that's even a little bit more of a big picture, 50,000 foot view. And I don't like to ascribe general population issues to individual players. That's a lot of times that's the best data we have. So we at least have to consider it. But I think it gets dangerous when we try to precisely discuss risks of individual players when we use larger data sets to do so. Um, are those players more likely to become infected with COVID? Not necessarily. I think the risk of infection has to do with your risk of exposure. Are they more likely to become symptomatic? Again, that has a lot to do with you know, what the level of exposure was uh, and any number of other factors. I, I think that the risk with diabetes and some of these other conditions is that once you are infected, it presents obstacles to your immune system and the health of your entire body system to fight off infection. So with regard to Mark Andrews and type 1 diabetes, if he has his if he has his blood sugars tightly controlled and his A1C, which is a marker of how chronically under stress his body is with diabetes, if that A1C is in a, in a in his normal range it can be, then his body is probably not facing a ton of additional obstacles compared to folks that maybe don't have diabetes. Now, um, that doesn't mean that there's no risk. Obviously, he's got that condition, so there's some elevated risk there. If he gets sick, it's going to be harder for him to manage his blood sugars in that moment. But is he more? Is he at higher risk um, of getting severe illness? I think a lot of that depends on what condition he is going into it. Should he get sick, it's going to be a major risk factor. Um, the folks with sickle cell trait in the league, John Brown and Tevin Coleman and others, they present a little bit different scenario in that um, clotting seems to be an issue and the hypercoagulable state, meaning that there could be blood clots anywhere and everywhere, blocking arteries and, and causing issues in major organ systems, could be a problem with those with sickle cell trait. Now, we don't generally think of folks with sickle cell trait in the same way we do of sickle cell disease, where any sort of infectious um, or stress on the body can cause a sickle crisis and a lot of hypercoagulation and blood clotting. Um, but we know these players in particular, um, and John Brown in particular, has struggled when their body has been stressed, um, whether it be due to heat, whether it be due to injury or otherwise. So you could postulate scenarios there where, yes, those folks may be um, under a little bit more potential for severe illness. And again, that may be, in their cases, maybe more of a long-term illness than a short-term illness where they have a mildly symptomatic issue. But if there are additional reasons for them to be at risk of blood clots in the future over and above their sickle cell trait, Again, not that that's necessarily a hypercoagulable state, but puts them in a little bit different situation circulatory-wise, then the long-term may be a bigger issue for those guys. Absolutely. That's perfectly worded. That makes a lot of sense. It's sort of the camp that I leaned in. And and I think that part of the problem with quantifying, you know, what you're, everything you just said is spot on. But in order to quantify that and, and then down to the granular level, level of, okay, well, yeah, and you should take this person at the ADP that they're at, or you should take them lower is so difficult to do because... I mean, you know better than anybody that predicting injury is pretty much a crapshoot, right? I mean, and so to predict something based off of an, a virus that has existed in, in you know, a, the specific subtype of virus that's existed in humans for six months is, it, it's a fool's errand to try to predict exactly how it's going to affect specific populations. So yeah, the information that we're working with is, is so incomplete, right? So right. if we were, you know, this as a physical therapist, um, 
if you were in the locker room and assessing um, the symmetry of muscles and the recovery period and knowing whether or not a player was more likely to keep himself in condition and, and knowing relative rates of recovery and otherwise, we'd have enough information where we could probably reliably say X player is slightly more prone to injury this year than Y player, but we don't have that information, generally speaking. There are some limited scenarios in which we can say, we know that you're at high risk and the questions you're asking me here. So we, we know that these players have what we would consider and have established to be high risk conditions with COVID-19, um, but we don't know their specific scenario from minute to minute should they be infected. Should they be infected? So we're dealing with relative risk. I think it makes a lot of sense to, you know, to, to consider what your risk tolerance is as far as fantasy football goes to decide whether or not you're going to move this player down to the bottom of a tier because you've heard he's already been infected with COVID or because you know he potentially has a high risk condition. Um, but you know, at, at that point, it becomes very difficult to be, in my opinion, very precise about uh, what directions to move. I think moves within tiers probably make sense, but much more than that, I think is is more speculation than science. That's a good way to put it too, speculation versus science. And unfortunately, that's just what we're working with at this point. And, and you mentioned something too that I, I didn't I didn't write down, but I did want to touch on. So the the idea of viral load, right? There's some preliminary information, some data coming out saying, you know, basically showing if if you know X patient does not ever reach X amount of viral load, then they essentially don't develop antibodies, and they can theoretically speaking develop, or they have been, I guess these these patients have been developing symptoms again, or they've been testing positive again. How do you, you know, view that? And I, I, I wondered, and I'm curious, I said this on Twitter, you know, we did just talk about elite athletes whose their risk necessarily isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily lower, but their ability to develop symptoms, you know, maybe. Um, and so is it possible for, for example, Ezekiel Elliott, who maybe didn't have symptoms, is it possible for him? Is it possible he didn't reach the viral load, you know, capacity or the threshold? He didn't develop antibodies and he could test again. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's that's a difficult question to answer for lots of different reasons. First, uh, just to define viral load, that just has to do with the amount of, for lack of a better word, let's just call it active and replicating virus in a place um, where it can be tested. So the viral load studies are generally done in the back of the nose and the mouth, and um, we would ordinarily think that the more virus you have before your immune system starts to respond, the more likely you are to have a symptomatic illness and potentially severe illness. Um, the antibody question is a good one. I think the larger question you're answering, asking there is, um, is it possible that folks with a relatively low viral load from a relatively less symptomatic infection, are they immune? Is their immunity long lasting? And that's not just an antibody question. There's other parts of the immune system that are involved there. And it may be that the antibody tests that we do, we see waning levels of antibodies in six months, three years, 10 years. That's the case with our regular, I hesitate to say this, but our garden variety coronaviruses that we see in the cold and cough category every year, we do see waning immunity over time, which may be part of the reason that the younger age groups are a little bit less likely to get infected if there's some sort of cross coverage in our immune system. But it's not just antibodies. There are other parts of our immune system that may fight that off. So, you know, we may have a player who say has an antibody test and they tell us two years along the line, once we're on the other side or whatever this is, I no longer have antibodies to coronavirus. And what does that mean? Well, it might not mean much um, if there are other parts of the immune system that are ready to ramp up um, when it's time to do so. So I, I don't know, I, you know, we've been discussing internally, how are we going to handle players like Ezekiel Elliott and others that we are, have been told have positive coronavirus? Should we bump them up in the rankings? Do they get a little, do we worry more about them because maybe they are going to be prone for long-term illnesses and maybe their lung capacity and, and what have you is a little bit worse. So I'm not exactly sure 
how to handle that moving forward. Um, I would generally think, maybe this is hopeful on my part, but I would generally think that any sort of infection that's detectable, um, and assuming it was a true and active infection and not a false positive, is probably going to stimulate the immune system in some way such that players will have coverage for this for whatever length of time it takes us to get to the other side of this, whether it's a year or three years, uh, in some way that we can get an outpatient treatment, find some way to make sure that severe illness is less likely and that hospitalization is less likely, whether that be medications, treatments, um, various vaccines or otherwise. So that's that's a tough question to answer. I'm not really sure where I'm going to come down on that yet, other than I don't think I'm too concerned. Um, about moving players around from a fantasy football perspective for that. I'm just hopeful that they all remain healthy, whether they get infected or not. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, what's lost in all of this too. Um, the first thing you said actually is, is about, you know, are there going to be false positives or will there be false positives? Are we even certain that Ezekiel Elliott's, you know, test was, was a positive. We, we just don't know for for 100%. Obviously they're not reporting that to us, you know, in a way that's, that's totally foolproof. We don't know that for a fact. And no uncertain terms, this this is what we know right now. This is how, how we're going to go about it in the moment to get down to the granular level. And, you know, should you move people up and down rankings or maybe within tiers is something that that is going to be up to each individual player. And I think maybe getting a little overzealous with, oh, you know, bump them up, bump Ezekiel Elliott up to know this is what we know in the moment. So zooming out then from a big picture perspective, since it is so difficult to know what we're going to do with each individual player. Um, and this also might be too big of a question, maybe too broad of a question, but I, I just want to get your general thoughts on what are the chances that the NFL, you know, the NFL season gets pulled off and it gets pulled off to to a full extent and we have, you know, as regular or as normal of a season as we can have. Yeah, it's the billions and billions of dollars question. And that may end up being the rightly or wrongly the the uh, the limiting factor in all this. I think it is going to be difficult to in a in a league where even though there's only you know, what, eight travel weeks until you get to the playoffs, traveling uh, this large number of players throughout the league and support staff. We're seeing what's happening with Major League Baseball right now with relatively smaller rosters and traveling parties when they go from from city to city. We're going to be in the middle of respiratory season for whatever that means this year. I think it's going to be hard to avoid outbreaks without, you know, kind of the, the bubble system that we've seen the NBA and professional soccer leagues and others do. So there's going to be stress on the league this year. However, the league is highly motivated to finish this year. And, you know, what does a full season look like? Is it possible that we don't finish the season until sometime in the spring? Does that count as a full season? Are we going to get 16 regular season games and a full playoff season in? I really don't know. I think you can easily make an argument that this pandemic is going to be very difficult to play through without interruption. And you can easily make an argument that, that, you know, money talks. And as long as players are reasonably healthy and the competitive balance of the league is reasonable, the owners and the players um, in their own way have, have decided that they're going to go forward with the season and, and we're seeing players opt out, but we haven't seen a whole lot of conversation from the league suggesting that there's concern. I'm certain that they're watching major league baseball and some of the other major sports leagues very closely, but, um, you know, this is a situation where I guess for lack of a better term, you'd say it's 50 50, because I think it's easy to make an argument in both directions. What do you think is maybe the, um, the most effective thing, the one thing that NFL is doing, um, or maybe there are a few of them that you look at and you, uh, you think that that it's a good thing that you, basically they're doing it that it's, it's helping to minimize the risk that their players are going to face that they're that they're it's just staff in general are going to face. Yeah, I'm hoping that it is frequent, reliable, 
testing uh, with a quick turnaround time. Um, and I'm also, I, I think that's the best thing they can do to mitigate spread at this point, um, other than to continue to impress upon everybody around the team that physical distancing, masking, limiting exposure is your best way to prevent coronavirus getting into the locker room. And it only takes a small handful of players um, to, to, you know, to, to make a mistake in that regard and bring coronavirus in the locker room. That may not all be their fault. You know, they still have to go through airports. They still have to go through hotels. Um, they're still coming into the stadium where there's going to be some other support personnel there as well. So you know, even the best laid plans of very frequent testing, and it looks like, you know, if things are going well, that's going to be an every other day scenario with the hopes that you get tests returned in 24 hours. There's still gaps in there. So, um, you know, hopefully the entire process from testing to distancing to, to, minimizing practice and exposures and virtual meetings and so on and so forth proves to be helpful. But uh, there's, there is not an, an easy, if there was, we'd know what it was for schools and society and what have you, but um, they're going to be under stress this year for sure. Yeah, that's definitely something that, that is such a difficult question to answer, but I think it's so funny the way you worded it, the, it's going to be the billions, the billions and billions of dollar question. And it's so true there. It wouldn't be happening. Motivated. Yeah. It would not be happening if it weren't for, you know, the financial health of the league and the, and the owners um, and the players to a certain extent as well. Um, fans are pushing for this as well. But if, if this was not a billion dollar industry, um, you know, say what you want about, um, you know, coronavirus and an effect on the, the uh, economic and behavioral health of our society, I, I don't see much sense or some much possibility that these sports leagues would be going on if it wasn't the business that it was. Right. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what people need to remember. It's a business first and foremost. And, um, unfortunately it seems like maybe sometimes the owners will, uh, I was, I remember I was really frustrated when the talks of, of starting, you know, this would have been maybe back in June. Um, they, they started discussing, you know, okay, what are we going to do preliminarily? And before even putting out a, a, uh, like a, a I guess a, a, a plan for the players, you know, a testing, a protocol, a, a distancing plan or anything like that. Uh, they got their, their sponsors in a row. They got their ducks in a row. They said, we're going to be at this X amount capacity and we'll put sponsors in the front row and it'll be great and we'll still make our money. That was that was frustrating to me because um, I'm sure to a certain extent you can relate about uh, when you view things uh, from, from as a healthcare provider, you really do genuinely view things from a player health perspective first. And that was, for me, that was frustrating to see that that they were more concerned about sponsors before a, a plan for their people. I don't know I'm, how you feel about that. No, I'm with you for sure. I, you know, I always feel like sometimes as a pediatrician, I'm a little bit of the no fun police, and that I, you know, I see pools and swing sets and monkey bars and and uh, rollerblades <laughs> and all that sort of stuff as as potential injury than uh, the fun that they are. So, and you know, the same thing goes here. I, you know, the, the the league and the players are in their own way both highly motivated to have a season, but it's just so unfortunate that we're in a situation where you know the medical health of individuals and the community and society in general is so directly opposed at this point to you know, to financial and economic and behavioral and nutritional and academic health and all those other things we could talk about. But, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult needle to thread, unfortunately, but one we need to continue to try to work hard to do. That's right. All we can do is move forward with the information we have at the time. And especially for fantasy football purposes, I mean, people are constantly trying to figure out what they're going to do. What, what are the rankings? How should we plan? We you know, what are, what are the, what are your thoughts on this X, Y, or Z player? So to that, you know, to that sort of, um, subject matter. If you are, and I'm sure you are, maybe you're not a fantasy football commissioner in a league, 
what are you doing to help mitigate maybe this this volatility of the season in 2020? Are you are you doing IR slots? Are you doing expanded benches? Are you? I've seen people proposing just completely suspending the season until we know that there's going to be an actual NFL season in dynasty leagues, for example. What are you doing? What are your thoughts on expanding leagues or expanding benches or anything like that? Yeah, I think you first first and foremost, you know the you know the the focus of all of our fantasy seasons and the NFL seasons, we're going to have to stay flexible. You're going to try to be proactive, but things are going to change. You see how MLB, you know, puts out a 150 page document. And then when there's an issue with the Marlins and Phillies and where it seems like we're adjusting on the fly and as a commissioner, you're probably going to need to do the same thing. I think it makes sense to, uh, because the NFL has a COVID list to mirror that with some sort of injured reserve list. Uh, your decision on expanded rosters is going to be whether or not, you know, you want some level of, competition on the waiver wire or not. If you'd rather have shorter rosters, then you probably have um, shorter benches. But, you know, we hopefully we never have so many players that are on the COVID list from a week to week basis where we are overwhelming rosters. But I think you have to have an extra IR list. I think you have to be super flexible about who you can put on it and who can come off it. That's what the NFL has chosen to do this year. And I think that's probably what fantasy folks ought to be doing as well. I agree with that completely. I think the flexibility is the main part. I think trying to be rigid with what you what your rules are in your leagues are it's going to be the downfall of your league. I think it's going to be more of a disaster than you. It's going to be the, the unintended consequences if you're too um, stringent. I talk about that on the this is going to be the COVID part two uh, podcast series episode. And on in the first one, I talk about being too rigid with the players that you decide can and can't go off of IR or whatever. Um, it's going to be it's going to be hard to say. I mean, we don't even know. You know, for example, when an a-, a player tears their ACL, you know, we people like you and I can look at it and say, oh, you know, that was probably an ACL tear. We don't get a report from the team until however long, right? And we don't say, we don't designate IR slots for, oh, this is an ACL IR slot, right? We don't designate, this is an illness IR slot. Um, you know that Bill Belichick's probably going to try some monkey business. And if he has a player test positive, the player's going to be on the injury report with, you know, ear, it's going to be like ear. And then you'll ask about it. It'll be, oh yeah, well he had, you know, an ear, nose and throat infection. It was COVID, right? So there's too much monkey business. If you're not flexible, that can go on. Um, just be flexible. It's it's going to be a season that is, is unprecedented. That, that word gets thrown around a lot, but it, it's so true from an NFL perspective, player health perspective, fantasy football perspective. It's just, it's just volatile. Just be, be flexible. And it sounds like uh, Doc is saying the same thing here. So t- to sort of wrap, unless you had anything else you wanted to add about COVID, um, I wanted to wrap and just hear your story really quickly because I love hearing how people start, especially when, you know, for example, it's a role model like you for me. I like knowing how you got your start in this specific portion of the industry. Um, what was the impetus for that? How did, you know, what was the, the journey for that? Well, you called me an OG. I don't know if I'd consider myself an OG. I guess I'm older and more experienced in this particular part of the industry than maybe some young pups like you. But <laughs> I think I'd probably consider myself towards the end of the second generation. I think um, I can remember when I first got interested in, in football and fantasy football, Adam Kaplan and Steve Cohen were running an email server where they'd send out some injury related information. I think they may have been the first to, you know, other than your, you know, your newspapers and, and what you'd see on the Sunday morning shows um, when the injury report was really the wild west of, of injuries in the NFL. And then, you know, Ed Will Carroll, you mentioned Stefania Bell, I think those folks had been doing it for a good period of time. And I, I don't even know, it has probably been 13, 15 years or so now. Um, the impetus for us, I started out 
writing about defensive players, which was and still is a, an interest of mine. But um, we had a, a thread at Football Guys after Ben Roethlisberger um, wrecked his motorcycle and injured himself. You know, what does this mean? You know, we're hearing that he's got major facial injuries and and there may be some other things going on. Is it possible that he's going to be able to recover? Uh, what do we need to know? And and it turned into something that went out on the email list and it was pretty well received. And and I was asked to continue to do it. And um, just out of, of, of curiosity and, and, a, and a feeling and a need to educate about some of these things and my sports medicine interest to begin with, um, it sort of morphed, it morphed into, well, let's talk about, you know, the five or six players that we're most worried about on Sunday morning to what it is now where we're generally tracking almost every player at every position and, and speculating uh, based on injury reports and, and visual evidence and otherwise whether or not they may play and how effective they are. So um, it was kind of amazing how quickly it sort of expanded and, and the learning curve that um, you know, somebody that's a, a pediatrician with a little bit of emergency room experience, you know, that I, I knew that there was a ton to orthopedics, but I don't feel like I realized is, um, you know, to, to start getting into the details and, and, and become an analyst in that regard, um, how complicated it might be. So I'm continually in awe of what you guys do, you know, to, to support athletes and, um, you know, with your background as a physical therapist and you mentioned David Chow, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, two decades of experience as an NFL team physician. And, um, you know, it's what we all aspire to do to be as um, comprehensive in our coverage as, as what he's been able to be. So I appreciate you calling me an OG, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that uh, I'm going to wear that mantle very comfortably, I guess. <laughs> oh, here, you're, you're my OG. You're an OG for me. What if I put it that way? Is that better? That'll be fine. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. So, well, I'm not very good at taking compliments, Ed. So I'll just, say I can thank tell, you. I can tell. Come on, doc. I mean, here's the deal. You got 37. First of all, maybe this is another question off the cuff question. You have 37,000 Twitter followers. How, how does that happen? How do, does that happen overnight? Like, is there just one day you wake up and you went from, you know, 3000 to 36,000? How does that work? That is, it just a, is that yeah. just a dumpster fire in your mentions? No, no. So a couple things. One that happens because um, I feel like if you put the work in and uh, you find a reasonable niche that people are interested in, others will find you. And the reason I have 37,000 followers probably has to do with me providing a service that people are interested in. But it is because so many people have propped me up over the years from, um, I mentioned Will Carroll, um, a huge influence early in, in helping me kind of get a start and encouraging me and pointing me in smart directions about how and when to write and how to exchange ideas. Ideas. Stefania has been very helpful in our career. Everybody at Football Guys, from David Dodds and Joe Bryant, Sigmund Bloom, Matt Waldman, almost every time I got a burst in followers, it was because somebody else retweeted something and said, hey, this is an interesting thing to read. And that goes for every, I'm sure you've experienced this too. Um, our industry is amazing in that for the vast majority of us, we prop each other up and share each other's content um, and, and good content rises to the crop. In terms of, of of whether or not my mentions are a dumpster fire or not, there are times where <laughs> I probably um, write something that frustrates a fan um, of a team or otherwise, uh, and and I get a little bit of pushback a little bit. But I also am a firm believer that um, you get the audience that you write for and the audience that you cultivate. So if you are um, uh, 
honest and forthright and show your work and engage people in a calm and uh, educational way, I just don't get a bunch of pushback in my mentions. Now, um, for any number of different reasons, both professionally and family-wise, I have not been as active on Twitter in the last couple of years, and we'll see how that goes with this season. It could go either way, honestly. Um, so my mentions are as quiet as they've ever been, but I think that's a function of um, just you know a general decrease in engagement on my part. But, you know, I think you'll find that uh, the, the folks whose mentions are the most difficult are those who have strong takes um, and uh, who are, are willing to debate uh, and sometimes in good ways and sometimes not so good ways. So I've never really had too much issues within my mentions. And it's probably just because I, I just don't engage that aspect of, of Twitter life. Um, <laughs> if, if and when I can ever avoid it, sometimes it's more difficult than others, but you know, nobody likes to read that, you know, that, that, uh, there's been some optimism about their favorite player and, and, you know, and we throw cold water on it for a reason or another, no matter oh, yeah. how nuanced or, um, uh, or, you know, backed up our arguments may be. It's no fun to hear that. So that happens from time to time for sure. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that for me personally, I, uh, um, I, I think that the, the debates that I get in are when I get frustrated when, you know, I'll present maybe a, like a, uh, an article, a research article. It's got pretty solid, you know, as solid as you can get in terms of, you know, exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria, um, methods are, are solid. Uh, the statistical analysis is, is good, but we don't, you and I don't discuss that because they don't care, right? They don't care about what the methods were. They want to know what, what the hell does this mean for my fantasy team? Um, and then you present it as, oh, here's the numbers, here's what it says, and here's what we're going to do. And, you know, they say, well, you know, I just, I just think that's a narrative. And you're thinking to yourself, what, this is, no, like, you don't understand. This is, this is pretty good evidence. This is, <laughs> this is scientific research. It's not, this is not an opinion. So I think that's when I get the most frustrated. Um, and, and, but I've been trying to, I've been trying not to do, not to push back anymore. I just, just I imagine you feel that professionally sometimes too, when you have a patient oh, sitting yeah. in front of you that may not be, you know, you're trying to make the, the best effort for their health as you can. And, and they're choosing to do something else. I don't see that as being too much different as, you know, somebody jumping on in 280 characters and, and, uh, and trying <laughs> to take apart an argument without much behind it, that you've spent a long time considering and formulating and, and, uh, and, and trying to make the best you can. Well, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Google, right? Of course. Yeah, everybody's heard of Dr. <laughs> Google. <laughs> Thanks so much again for coming on. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question before I let you go here. Um, we Here on the Injury Pro Fantasy Football Podcast, of course, now we have two injury pros. You're an injury pro and I'm an injury pro. Um, we give out band-aids of advice. Uh, it can be fantasy football related, life related, work related, relationship related, dog walking related, whatever you think, Doc. Um, any type of, of advice that you have, a band-aid of advice for people who are listening right now? I saw you include that question on our potential agenda for tonight. And I, I struggled with, you know, where I thought I might go with this. It's not, you know, in my wheelhouse necessarily, but I think what I arrived at is just generally, and that, I think some of the things that we just hit on there in the last few minutes, which um, I, I try to anchor myself in being curious um, being patient, trying to be kind when you can, especially in, you know, and we're all stressed with everything that's been going on COVID related in these last few months. Um, try to anchor yourself to those things and, and, uh, and hopefully that comes through and, 
in, in what you write and, and how you converse and, and how we treat one another. So I think we're going to need a lot of that as these next few months come, as we navigate whatever respiratory season brings us. And hopefully we'll be coming through on the other side of this football season, talking about what a wonderful job we did of threading the needle and how well everything went in comparison to how it might've gone had it not been as successful. That's what I'm hoping for. Absolutely. You heard it here first at Gene Bramble, Dr. Gene Bramble coming on, tell, talking to you all about COVID, the NFL season, um, a lot of different aspects, the nuances of it, what we know now, how to handle it as a commissioner. Thanks again, Doc, really. I genuinely mean it. Um, I really, it really means a lot that you'd come on in the first place and have this conversation with me. So hopefully we can do this again sometime. Um, again, any, anything else you want to plug other than being at footballguys.com? No, not at all. I appreciate you having me on. I am happy to to, uh, to hop on and discuss things in the future. You guys are doing great work. I was happy to have stumbled upon your Twitter feed here in the last few months, and um, I'm disappointed that I didn't uh, know of your work sooner. So it's been great to read your uh, Twitter contributions, and I really appreciate the way that you boil down the, the data into some actionable information and, and have those conversations on Twitter. It's been a fun Twitter feed to follow, so keep up the great work. That means a lot coming from you. It really does. And I really, I really appreciate it. So you hear it here first, Dr. Gene Bramel, giving you the comprehensive look at COVID related injuries, giving me a compliment that I'm having a hard time taking now as well. He said he's not going to take compliments, <laughs> but I appreciate it again. And everybody make sure you subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating. Let us know what you thought of this episode. And I'm sure it's going to get a ton of listens. Um, it's going to get a ton of clicks because Dr. Gene Bramble knows what he's talking about. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.